0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are going through the whole book of James, five chapters, uh, one of the first books written in the New Testament by James, who became an early church leader after Jesus ascended and went back into heaven. And he was just as influential as the Apostle Peter and... The Apostle Paul and John and was a shepherd and a pastor and helped oversee the first church in Jerusalem where they had many Jewish believers and there was persecution and other things that chased a lot of these believers out of the area. And they've been out of the area, uh, some planting churches in other regions outside of Israel or Palestine as we call it, and 10, 15 years later, James is getting reports from these scattered Jewish believers in their respective churches, and he's... Hearing Good things he's hearing discouraging things he's hearing some bad things and so he writes this letter as a an apostle as a leader of these churches as he is moved by the very spirit of God not giving his own words but God's mandates to write the book of James to all of these churches Um, again the audience being Jews who became Christians uh, some just professing Christians but for the most part they were all believers and after 10 to 20 years, they began to struggle with the issues of life like we all do. And so the Holy Spirit uses James to address these issues in the life of believers. 2,000 years later, this ancient document is just as relevant for us and where we are today because people don't change. They're the same. Life doesn't change. Uh, Problems that human beings face don't change. They're all the same. And God never changes. His truth never changes. And therein lies the guarantee that the Scripture is relevant, pertinent, For us, even regarding our situations today, so this is really a letter for us, and not just James's additional or uh, 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 original audience. So we are picking when we're going through this book, one chapter at a time, about a paragraph at a time, or a main thought at a time. Took a break last week for those of you who were not here. Just I uh, did a slideshow on our trip to Israel, which we are very thankful to be able to go on. Just very exciting, fantastic, and so now we're going to get back to the book of James, where we left off last time. And those of you who have been with us, remember that we finished uh, James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So we're, today we're going to pick up verses 3 through 12. So follow along as I read. James is picking up a new topic, and it's the topic of the tongue. We'll read up to verse 12. I'm reading from the New American Standard. James says to these Jewish believers, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bridle into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of that pilot desires. Well, so also the tongue. Is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our body members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed. And has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So that's James' description of the tongue. So we're going to talk about the tongue today. I've got three points there that I put to kind of make an outline to help you think it through. Hopefully it's practical. It's important to to know that James, as he's writing, he assumes that who he's writing to, these are believers. He takes them at their profession, or he takes their profession at face value. Um, So he just assumes they are believers. They are true Christians. They have been born again. They know the gospel. They've made a commitment to Jesus Christ with knowledge and understanding. So that's who his audience is. So he's assuming a lot of things to be true. And so that's why this is relevant for us for the most part we can just uh, assume that the majority of people in our church today are believers they know the gospel they know Christ they've been born again familiar with the word so with that assumption that James makes where he assumes his listeners are believers he has a certain expectation of them he expects something different from believers than he would if they were not believers and as a result That's why the book of James is just filled with imperatives. It's got more imperatives than any other New Testament epistle that's written. Imperative, I mean a command, an expectation. Do this, do this, do this. Do not do that, do not do that, do not. So he's giving these pastoral exhortations, punctuated all throughout the book of James. And that's one of the unique distinctives of the book of James. Sometimes you feel like you're getting pummeled by James as you're reading through James. And so as a result, James' epistle is a call to action. To believers, it's a call to action, a call to obedience, a call to for all of us who are professing Christians to examine our life and our commitment to Jesus Christ, and to see if we are living a consistent Christian life in every area of life. So that's James' goal, that's his expectation, and that's what we have uh, right here in James chapter three, verses one through twelve. By the way, there's no gospel in James chapter three, verses one through twelve. There's a long section here between chapter two and three and going into four where there's no gospel. Because he's assuming these people are believers. And if you're a believer, there's a certain level of expectation of how you need to live in every area of your life. And the area of life that he zooms in on here for us as believers is our mouth, our tongue, how we speak. So that's the theme of this passage. He's addressing how we live by how we speak. The tongue. The tongue is powerful. There's a verse there I put there in your outline. Great verse out of Proverbs. that really sums up the theme of James here, Proverbs 18:21. "Death and life are in the power of the tongue." That, that's heavy duty, that is profound. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, in the words we communicate and how we communicate them. They can be a tremendous blessing or tremendously devastating, the words we use. So that's what James is addressing here, the power of the tongue. I also thought it was interesting to think about that the Bible is the Word of God. So, you know, there are many religions in the world, and, and most religions have a holy book, whether it's Islam and their Quran, or, the, or Mormonism and the Book of Mormon and their their four books of doctrine, and Hinduism and the Bhagavad Gita, or whatever holy books they have, and the Vedas. And so many religions have a holy book, and I think one thing that is clearly distinct about the book of the Bible of the Christians of the Church is it has a comprehensive theology of the mouth. You're not going to find that in any other religion. A complete, comprehensive theology of our words and how we should talk, guard our mouth, and how we should speak in every circumstance, every situation of life. There is no book like it. Uh, That's why we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible addresses every area of life, even the area of of how we speak. So, very encouraging. And James addresses the mouth, and he calls it uh, kind of the most powerful instrument of all of our human body parts, even though it's small. And it is. The tongue has the ability to give life and death to build up and to destroy. And when I say that the Bible has a theology of the mouth, you could just look at the book of Proverbs or take the whole Bible in its entirety, and the Bible addresses every conceivable sin that the mouth has to offer for us, which all of us, every single one of us, are susceptible to to on a regular basis. So this was a good study for me this week and very convicting, clearly exposing me, showing me that I need to be dependent upon God always continually for how I use my mouth and how I misuse my mouth. This is actually a sermon that every single Christian could use every single week, but we can't stay in James chapter three, one through 12 every week forever. We got to move on because it's so easy to forget. It's such a challenge. It is so hard. If you don't believe me? I will challenge you with this. When I'm done, and just uh, whenever we finish this sermon, whether it's 12:20 or 12:50, um, look at your watch, hack, and then see how long it is before you misuse your tongue and sin with it before the day is over. It ain't going to take long, probably. And sometimes those sins we don't even recognize. But here's some blatant sins that the Bible talks about with regard to the tongue that we need to address here: uh, the sins of the tongue, complaining, gossip. Speaking with angry words, speaking with critical words, speaking with harsh words, being sarcastic can be sinful, boastful, argumentative, cutting, biting, defensive, lying, just being mean and unloving. Now, did any of those jab you? Oh, I got... I got pricked and jabbed and convicted by all of those. The, the Word of God is living and active. So let's go ahead and look at what James has to say regarding the power of the tongue as he wants to help believers rein it in. We need James's help. We need the Spirit of God's help. We need Scripture's help. We need the help of truth to rein it in um, our tongue. So let's look at our three principles there. first one is verses 3 to 5. The first one I have there is the power of our tongue. Or the power of the tongue. It wields great influence. That's his point there in verses three through five. The tongue is powerful, incredibly powerful. And to prove his point, he says, verse three. Now, the tongue is so powerful and influential. Now, here's an and he gives examples from nature, metaphors, comparing them. To the tongue the tongue is small yet it is incredibly powerful and influential and the examples he uses are in the following verses now if we put the bridle literally it's the bridle or the bits into the horse's mouth so you get this huge massive horse they weigh hundreds of thousands of pounds we, we used to live on a horse farm actually it was in our backyard and we took care of these horses every day and there were some huge horses that we had to feed and they were scary as you get near them and if you spook them and they could kick you and kill you. They could throw you off and kill you. And we've had near experiences with some of those kind of things. And I was recently on a horse not long ago. Hadn't been on one in a long time. and it was kind of, I had to be real timid and scary in terms of how I approached that horse because they are so powerful. Great strength. But despite their tremendous size and power and wild nature, horses can be reined in. And the key to reining the horse in is with just the bridle. This thing you stick in his mouth. It's, and it's actually, if you're not familiar with horses and you can get up close and you realize that the key to controlling this horse, uh, steering it, making it go, making it stop, everything comes down to just what, how you control its mouth is amazing. And that's the illustration here. Now, if we put the bridle or the bits in the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, and you can do that. You can tame a horse, train a horse, ride a horse, based on the control of his mouth. With just a little bit or a little bridle that you stick in his mouth. So a little thing controls a very large animal. That's the point. The bridles that we put in the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well just with that little thing on their mouth. And then another illustration he gives here in verse 4. Then there's these ships on the water, big ships, massive ships, even in Paul's day, in James's day, in the Apostles' day. And he says, look at the ships that are out on the sea, especially the massive ones and the big ones, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds. Wind is powerful. The water is powerful. The waves are powerful. And yet... These massive ships are still directed, controlled or still, by a very small rudder on the bottom of the boat. Isn't that amazing? Little rudder dictates where this ship is going to go. This huge, massive ship controlled by a very small thing called the rudder. Just like the huge uh, wild horse is controlled by one small thing in his mouth called the bit. So there's a parallel there. So these huge ships are directed uh, by a very small rudder going wherever the pilot desires. Verse 5, so also is a... So also is the tongue a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. So just like the rudder, just like the horse's bit, that's the tongue. It is small, yet it uh, wields great control and influence. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And he compares a tongue to a fire. And he's talking to Christians. So he's reminding them, Christian, keep in mind, your mouth is a fire. It has great potential. And like all gifts from God, fire is a gift from God. And every gift from God can be used for good or abused for destruction, right? Every single gift from God. That's true. So also it is the tongue, the gift from God. It's incredibly powerful. It can be misused. It can be abused. So he makes three comparisons of the small tongue to a fire, a rudder of a ship, a bridle, for a horse. And his point is real simple. And well, What is his point? Well, his point is that the tongue, like those three things, the fire, uh, the bridle of a horse, and uh, the rudder of a ship, all three things are small, yet wield great influence and power. All three things need to be controlled. The wild horse needs to be controlled. The ship and the rudder need to be controlled. The little fire, the little spark, needs to be controlled. So also, the little tongue needs to be controlled. Control. That's one of his main points it needs to be controlled another point. He's making is that uh, the tongue is small just like those things the rudder the small spark The bit that goes in the horse's mouth and his last point in parallel that he's making here if we don't control the tongue Just like if we don't control the horse's bridle if we don't have if we don't control the horse with the bridle the wild horse can do great damage Christopher Reeve remember Superman? He played in the movie Superman and many other movies, a Hollywood star. and Got bucked off a horse, broke his neck. Eventually, probably led to his death. So that's how powerful a horse can be. So, and also ships, big ships, can be destructive. Think of the Titanic. How many lives were lost and how devastating that was. And fires, think of just a small spark. There's the world-famous Chicago Fire in the 1870s. Maybe some of you have heard about it. Maybe some of you are old enough. Maybe you lived during that time back in 1870. So anyway, this world-famous fire—I always hear about the Chicago fire because my father-in-law is always talking about it, as though he lived through it. 1870. Finally looked it up. What is he talking about? And it was—it was a huge fire that was uh, historic here in America, and it devastated huge parts of the entire city of Chicago. Uh, millions and millions of dollars of damage that were burned to the ground. Even in that day, millions and millions of dollars. Hundreds of lives were lost, and they, they determined that it came down to a one small spark, one match that devastated the city. That's what James is saying. Small, powerful, yet needs to be reined in and controlled, so also is your tongue and my tongue. So it's a great warning to heed. So there is great power in our tongue to bless and also to devastate others. So that is convicting. And James goes on, point number two. Not just the power of our tongue, but the problem with our tongue. That's his main point here. Christian to know that you've got great power and influence and potential in your tongue and it is susceptible to destructive, awesome, horrible consequences if not wielded and reined in. What is the problem with our tongue? Well, it can create widespread destruction. Verses 6-8. through The tongue can create widespread destruction. He says in verse 6, and the tongue is a fire. Again, he says it two times. Your tongue is a fire. Your tongue is the equivalent of a box of TNT. It could explode at any time. Spontaneously, unpredictably, uncontrollably, inconsistently. Isn't that how we talk sometimes? An explosion from our mouth based on the fire or the hatred or the ungodliness that comes from how we use our tongue. That's why he says the tongue is a fire. What does a fire do? If a fire out of control, it starts small and then it just keeps burning and burning and burning and brings devastation. So your tongue is a fire, the human tongue really generically speaking. As a matter of fact, the very world of iniquity, uh, Iniquity. Your, your tongue is powerful. If it is not kept under control, it is going to produce sin, incalculable sin, uh, de- devastating sin, widespread sin. And we see this. This happens in the family. This happens in the workplace. This happens in the church, unfortunately. This happens all over the place. Uh, uh, what great iniquity and sin can result from the byproduct of the misuse of the tongue. The tongue is set among our body members as that which defiles the entire body. Notice these words he's using about the potential of our tongue in terms of its evil. Iniquity. Defiling the entire body. Sets on fire the course of our entire life. You can destroy your entire life. You can destroy your entire reputation by virtue of the misuse of your tongue or our tongue. So that's what he means there. Setting on fire the course of our entire life, it is set on fire by hell, by Gehenna. Gehenna is the literal word. Just went to Israel and got to see uh, the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of Gehenna, which is just right, here's Jerusalem, it's kind of Jerusalem is up in the air, and then down below there's a couple valleys, and one of those valleys is called the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Gehenna, and from history and from Scripture in the Old Testament, uh, we know that in the valley down there in Gehenna, it was a place that they used kind of as a Place for the dump and they would throw trash there and they would burn it and it would seem to be always perpetually burning and burning and burning. And that's what he's, that's the analogy he's making. Your, your tongue, my tongue can be like Gehenna. It's down there, it's the constant burning fire that just exudes a stench from the smell of burning garbage. That's the analogy he's making. Gehenna, that can be the byproduct. Now, scripture talks comprehensively about a lot of ways that we can use our tongue for good the blessing that comes from our tongue. But that ain't what James is talking about here. He's he's shaking his finger at these believers because he has heard there's been destructive use widespread in the churches, in Christian lives, of misuse of the tongue. Stop it. Be warned. Reign it in. Control it. That's what he's doing. And all of us need to take heed. This applies to us as well, doesn't it? So that's why he's coming across like that is uh, being corrective of a pattern of behavior that's needs to be addressed with urgency. Set on fire by the Gehenna. He goes on in verse 7. For every species of beast... and it, This is kind of ironic. He's saying, imagine this. Think about all the animals in the world. From little kitty cats to puppy dogs, chihuahuas, to even wild animals. Or, or cows, sheep, to even lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Elephants. Camels, fish like dolphins and uh, the big, scary ones that are black and white with the big teeth, uh, killer whales. these can all be, it's an amazing. These can all be tamed by man. That baffles my mind every time we go somewhere, like the sea world, and see that dolphins, how incredibly intelligent they are, and they can be tamed and do what they're told, and even killer whales, how you can go up and apparently kiss a, a killer whale that's crazy. Uh but these animals can be tamed by me. Elephants can be trained, went to the circus, grown up to the circus all the time. These huge massive animals are being trained by the trainer. Lions, trained by the lion tamer and doing tricks and those kinda I guess the only animal that I mentioned I should I need to retract it. I said that kitty cats could be trained. My fault. Uh cats can't be trained. But anyway. But the rest of these wild beasts, amazingly, to a degree, can be trained, subdued by humanity. And so he makes this amazing statement in verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed, or literally, is being tamed, present tense, and has been tamed by the human race. And then he says this in verse 8. But, huge contrast. Imagine that, all these wild animals. The most uncontrollable, wild animal in the world is in your mouth. It is called your tongue. It's called my tongue. No one can tame the tongue. Boy, that's encouraging. James, I thought you were writing us to convict us and tell us we need to tame our tongue. And then here in verse 8 you say that we can't. No one can tame the tongue? Oh, well, I just won't try. Well, that's not all he's saying. He's just making a generic statement of reality. But in terms of the human species, the average human being, cannot control their tongue. They can't control it perfectly. They can't control it all the time. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, if you don't have the Spirit of God living in you, you can't control your tongue. It is impossible for you to control your tongue because you need help outside of yourself. You need supernatural resources to help you control your tongue. And so that's why he can make this generic statement that is true. No human being can tame the animal of the tongue. And at the same time, he says in verse 10 that we as Christians need to tame our tongue. You can't no human can control the tongue, but you Christians need to control the tongue. Well, that seems like a contradiction. That seems like a paradox. Is that a paradox? Yes. Is there a tension there? Absolutely. Is that frustrating to think about? Absolutely. We can't control the tongue, yet we're expected to control the tongue. God wants us to control the tongue and says we can control our tongue, but we can't control the tongue. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7:14 through25, about himself and his ability to perfectly control and reign in his sin all the time regarding his actions and his words, he was incredibly frustrated, and he said, "Man, the thing that I, I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I know I'm not supposed to do, I do anyway. Oh, wretched man, that I am, who is going to help me?" And the answer is in Romans chapter eight, and the answer for this is also in Romans chapter eight. Who is going to help me? But the generic general truth is that no human being can tame the tongue. And what that means is on their own, without supernatural intervention. So if you're not a Christian, you cannot. It is impossible to control your tongue. But we do know he's not saying that no Christian can never control their tongue any of the the time because we know that there are Christians who at times do control their tongue. And we can look at our own lives if we're Christians and you can evaluate yourself and realize, well, no, there are times where I actually controlled my tongue. There was a time when I tamed my tongue. I reined it in. God helped me. And I pulled it up. So that gives balance to this generic statement. No one can tame the tongue. All he's saying is that it's the wildest animal there is. No one can perfectly tame it, especially if you're not a believer and you can't tame it all the time. You need God's help to pull it off. That's, that's the emphasis there. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Look at what he's calling the tongue. It is iniquity. It defiles... And here he says, it is evil. And he even goes on, and full of deadly poison. Now our tongue is like that of a snake. A forked tongue. And he's speaking generically of the human tongue. And he's going, and really he's going beyond the organ of the physical tongue. Because when he's addressing the tongue, he's really addressing our speech, isn't he? Our speech is evil. Our speech is iniquitous. Our speech stains. Our speech is full of deadly poison. That's really what he's talking about, our speech. And when he's talking about our speech, he's going beyond our speech, isn't he? Because really what drives our speech and drives our tongue is our what? It is our heart. That's really what he's talking about. Which is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Jesus himself said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So you could do like some middle-aged ascetic st- saints who didn't understand this passage, or early church saints who read this passage and couldn't control their tongue all the time perfectly and were very frustrated and felt great guilt before God, what they do? They cut their tongue off. And you know what? That didn't solve the problem. Because that was just the physical organ. And still they still had these thoughts that were sinful and feelings in their heart that were iniquitous. It comes from the heart. So if you want to control the tongue to control your speech, then we have got to control the heart. And only God can control the heart. Because on a human level, we know from Jeremiah that the heart of man is desperately what? Desperately wicked. Desperately sick. No one, no one can control the heart. Only God can. And if you want to control your heart, you need a, heart, a spiritual heart transplant, don't you? By being born again. It starts there. And then once you're a Christian and you're born again, and God gives you a new man and a new heart spiritually speaking, we still need help to control that new heart because we have the residual of sin in us and we need God's help to reign it in. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So that's what he's getting at here. He, he's, tr- he's getting at the heart, but it manifests itself in our tongue, how we use it, how we misuse it, and in our words that we express towards other people. The problem with our tongue is that it is we use it, unfortunately, to create widespread destruction and damage. And this is usually manifest in relational damage. That's how we misuse our tongue. That is the byproduct. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, sows a seed. That seed will grow and produce a result. And that's why the book of Galatians says you will reap what you sow. And what we sow with our words, whether good or bad, there's going to be a consequence at the spiritual level, somewhere, somehow. So this is a great warning for all of us and a great challenge to monitor our tongue, evaluate our tongue, take heed about how uh, we use our words, how we misuse our words, how it affects other people. And we're going to get more specifically... To that but i want to now i want to take this home to where it's practical where is it most difficult most most challenging to control your tongue as a christian don't answer out loud because i'll give you the answer A 100 christian surveys and they all said the same thing on a regular consistent continual basis the most challenging place to control your tongue in a godly manner is in the home absolutely scripture validates that so I want to take these principles from James and I want to apply them to the home with regard to our tongue and how we're using our tongue at home and how every single one of us is vulnerable from one degree to another and how we're all susceptible as well. So this is the misuse of the tongue and how destructive it is in light of James's verses from 6 to 8, actually from verses 3 to 8, actually from 2 to 8 because he says we all stumble with our tongue. And I want to apply this in the home. In all relationships and roles at home. Children, parents, wives, husbands. How we abuse the tongue in all those relationships. What it undermines and what God's call is us to rectify that situation. So the wildfire of the tongue in the home. Manifest in uh, how children talk to their parents. That's the first one. children How do children misuse their tongue? Using it as a wild animal that creates fires at the home. Well, primarily... Children misuse their tongue towards their parents with rebellious, which Proverbs calls foolish, argumentative backtalk. That is primarily how children misuse their tongue with their parents at home. Rebellious, foolish, argumentative backtalk. That is based on many biblical passages that I gleaned. and I'm only going to share one, and it's in Exodus 21. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to go there. In Exodus 21, right after God gave the Ten Commandments, one of those Ten Commandments, in the first half of the Ten Commandments, God said parents need to hon- uh, children need to honor their parents. The New Testament comments on that and says children need to obey and honor their parents. It's a priority. Honor your father and mother. And then in the very next chapter of Exodus, There's a couple of ways specifically where God tells Moses, here's how children should honor their parents and here's how children will dishonor their parents. And one of the ways that children will typically dishonor their parents is Exodus 21, verse 17. He who, the child who, the offspring who curses his father or mother. That doesn't mean necessarily cusses at or says a dirty word. It's an attitude of cursing, of defying, of arguing back of rebelling against the authority of their parents. That's what it's talking about. He who curses his father and his mother shall surely, get this, shall surely be put to death. Whoa. Aren't you glad we're not abiding by the law today in the New Testament? Do children who talk back and curse to their parents today deserve death? Absolutely. Should they be stoned to death on the spot after a trial? Absolutely. Absolutely. Then why aren't we doing it? What was already done? Somebody needs to be executed for your sin. And somebody was executed for your sin 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ was put to death on behalf of every child who would defy their parents with rebellious conversation or words or cursing that required the death penalty. And Jesus died on the cross as their substitute. And if that child puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their substitute, they are forgiven of all of their sin, including their verbal rebellion. Isn't that good news? The death penalty has been met and fulfilled. God's justice has been fulfilled by the grace of God. And Jesus Christ absorbed all that anger and wrath that the Father had towards that rebellious child and totally forgives them if they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Even though He didn't deserve it. So the death penalty is still required. Jesus took the death penalty. So children exemplify a misuse of their tongue primarily through rebellious Foolish, argumentative back talk. And this is a direct attack on authority. That's the key word. What are children undermining when they do this? They're undermining authority that God wants to use in their life. Okay, so that's children. Well, how do parents misuse their tongue? When I say parents, it's towards their children. By the way, this is clearly uh, described in Colossians and Ephesians of how parents and children should interact. So I think one of the main ways that parents misuse their tongues towards their children is through words that are impatient, ungracious, exasperating words and threats. Impatient, ungracious, exasperating words and threats that parents use towards their children with their mouth, with their words that they should not do. Colossians 3.21. So in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 is where... Uh, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling and reminding how parents and children should get along and what their specific roles are. And in telling them what their roles are, he tells them what their weaknesses are. Here's where you're going to blow it. Parents, you are going to blow it in this area of exasperating your kids with your mouth and your words and your impatience and your threats. And that's why in Colossians 3, listen to this. A a warning to parents, uh, Colossians 3.21 Talks to children, children, be obedient to parents. And then 21. Parents, do not exasperate your children. And one of the main ways we do that as parents is with our words. Do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. A parent that exasperates their child continually harping down on them, you cause that child to lose heart. And that is a direct attack one of the main things that a child needs to grow in this life in a godly manner. And when we exasperate them with our words, that is a direct assault or attack on their hope. Their hope. So when you've got this relentless assault verbally from parents in the manner by which I described of impatient, ungracious, exasperating words and threats, you are undermining the hope of that child. And then that manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. Whether they isolate themselves, they become depressed, they, whatever. They don't want your Jesus. They don't want your hypocritical religion. So when children speak the wrong way towards their parents, it's a direct attack on authority. When parents speak the wrong way to children, it is a direct attack on their hope. Wives. How do wives, according to the Bible, there is a trend and there are things that are typical. Typical themes and trends of how wives speak in wrong ways to their husband. And I put it this way. Wives well, speak the wrong way to their husbands, primarily with critical, disrespectful, nagging, unsubmissive words. And I pulled those right out of a whole bunch of Bible verses. Even secular sociologists and other people and anthropologists would say that women speak more words than men. And most women actually agree with that. I think just practically observing, we can see that. And that's, that's actually a gift from God. That's a, a nurturing ability a uh, communicative ability that is helpful in terms of their role as nurturing women and training their children. So the fact that they speak a lot of words is actually designed by God, a gift from God, and every, every good gift from God is distorted. It can be because of sin, right? But because they speak more than men, they are more verbal, and that's why I think in Proverbs three times, Proverbs twenty-one nine, twenty-one nineteen, and 25.24, the wife is warned about her mouth and how she talks to her husband. And it says, it is better to live on the corner of a roof than with a vexing, contentious woman. And then it goes on to say, it is better to live in the wilderness of Israel, where you will die without food and water, than to live with a contentious, nagging wife. Three times that is repeated. And you're like, well, how come it never says a whole bunch of verses that it's better for... A woman to live on the roof than to live with a contentious nagging husband because husbands don't do that. That's why they do other things that are bad. They do other things that are just as bad. But this is just reality. That's what it's saying. By the way, that's a, a remedy from, it's a divine remedy from God. If you think about it, you're married, you're living in close, close quarters, you've been married a long time, you've been together a long time, and Then there's a squabbler or whatever. And then there's nagging that's going on. And then there's a fight that breaks out. And then whatever. And then God says, well, go to the roof or go to the desert. In other words, God is saying, take a time out. Halftime. Tweet! Breathe. Get away from each other. Let the dust settle. Allow the Spirit of God to come in and bring healing and conviction. That is wisdom from God. It's not an insult. But the point is, Uh, that would be one illustration of where wives are susceptible to sin with their mouth towards their husband with critical, disrespectful, nagging, unsubmissive words. Think of Job chapter 2. Job is going through all this horrific stuff. Their entire family, they lost ten kids that were uh, destroyed by the Sabaeans. They lost all of their servants. They lost all of their money. They lost all of their cattle. Uh, God is just letting Satan unleash a fury of assault on Job, his life, his family, everything precious to him. And all that is left is Job and his wife. Instead of the wife coming over and consoling with Job and, honey, I think we need to pray. She lays into Job and says, curse God and die. And then Job said, you foolish, ungodly woman. And your words are sinful. And after that, it said that Job did not sin with his mouth. The the rebuke for his wife was appropriate. Uh, The balance to this of wives and the struggle with their mouth is 1 Peter 3. At the shepherds' conference, I had an opportunity that came up spontaneously where Fellow pastor, I hadn't seen in a long time, asked me to get together with me for some. I didn't know why I wanted to get together, but it turns out a counseling session. I didn't know I was on the clock, uh, but we had a good discussion, and it had to do with uh, relate, personal relationships he had. He's been a believer a long time, longer than me. He's older than me, but just asked me, and it had to do with relating to females in his family. And I said, "Well, do your." And these are all believers. And I took him to First Peter three. Uh, you know, if you asked your family member who's a female and a believer, if, if you were to ask them what is the number one thing that pleases God most uh, for you as a female to your God? What is the number one thing that pleases your God as a woman in terms of your role as a wife? And the pastor I was talking to, he didn't know the answer. I mean, he gave a bunch of answers. Uh, being submissive, being this, being that, being respectful. I said, well, no. Those Those are priorities. But in terms of the terminology of what pleases God, uh, I took it to 1 Peter 3 and this is what it says. In the same way you wives, be submissive to your husbands. So you need to be submissive. Uh, do what they say. So that even if any of your husbands are disobedient to the Word. So even if you have a knucklehead husband, even if your husband is not a Christian, or if he's a believer and he's disobedient, he's disobedient to the Word. You still need to be submissive to Him. Well, how do you win the knucklehead over? Well, here's the answer. Submit to them, to the knucklehead, in order that the husband may be won over without a word, by your nagging, but rather be won over by the behavior of the wife, as the husband observes your chaste and respectful, quiet behavior. Your adornment or beauty must not be uh, merely external, braided hair and all that stuff, but rather let your beauty be the hidden person of the heart, get this, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, See, that's your words. A gentle and quiet spirit, what does God think of that? Which is precious in the sight of God. You want to be a godly woman, a mature woman, a woman that pleases God, a woman that wins over her husband, then you need to do it on a regular basis with a gentle and quiet spirit. The light went on for him and he's like, wow. I've read that passage a zillion times. Never saw it. Thank you. And we prayed. So it was encouraging. So, Uh, When it comes to wives, I think when they speak the wrong way to their husband in in those manners I described, that is a direct attack on respect. Because if you read all the passages about husband and wives and how they relate, what the husband needs most, according to God, from the wife is respect. I've actually sat in many counseling sessions over the years with husbands and wives who are Christians and they're having problems in their marriage and there are times where the wife said, and I said, I read those passages uh, so you know what you're, how you're supposed to conduct yourself towards your wife? Yeah, I need to be submissive, blah blah blah. Well, it also says you need to respect him. And I've had many a wife say, "Well, he doesn't deserve my respect." Like, ouch! But he's a Christian. It doesn't even matter if he's a Christian. He's your husband. You need to respect and honor. So, speaking the wrong way is a direct attack on respect. So, for review, when children speak the wrong way to their parents, that is a direct attack on authority. Uh, when parents speak the wrong way to their children, that is a direct attack on the hope. Of the child, when wives speak the wrong way to their husband, is a direct attack on the respect in the relationship. And then finally, husbands. According to scripture passages that I gleaned, I see a pattern and a theme of how husbands speak the wrong way to their wives, and it's usually manifested this way. So wives speak more than husbands, but the uh, the gift of God to the husband, and he is called to be the leader. He is the leader, right? He is to be the protector. He is to be the provider. He is to be the Superman. Da 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 da, right? To be the strong one, the defender. The one that takes initiative and speaks loudly, hopefully in a good way. And then when he is sinful, that is turned on its ear. And this is how the sinful husband speaks to his wife. He speaks harshly, loudly, with anger, bitterness, defensiveness. And that defensiveness is directly related to pushback. He's giving to the wife that he's feeling as though his authority is being usurped. Just exactly described in Genesis 3 because of sin. So the husband speaks to the wife sinfully, many times harsh words, loudly angry with bitterness. Bitterness, by the way, doesn't, isn't always loud. Sometimes the bitterness where he clams up. Well, all of a sudden, the, hus- the, the woman's screaming at the top of her lungs, and the husband isn't saying anything. Well, maybe, so apparently he doesn't have a problem. No, he has a huge problem. He is not verbalizing it, it is right here. And it is boiling. And it is right here. And it is sinful. And believe me, it is going to come out and manifest itself. In simple, sinful behavior at some point. But again, this is just looking at Scripture objectively. It has nothing to do with me evaluating my relationship or other relationships. This is what Scripture says. God made us. He knows us best. He defined the roles. Husbands, do not speak harshly, loudly, angrily, or with bitterness, or defensively towards your wife. And when husbands do that, they are directly undermining one of the greatest virtues or desires that God wants to cultivate between husbands and wives. And that is, it's undermining love. Hence those commands in Scripture, the primary command. Husband, love your wife. Husbands, love your wife. And in that passage in Ephesians 5, it doesn't just stop with, Husband, love your wife. It goes on to say, Husband, cherish your wife. 1 Peter 3, husband, remember that your wife is a frail vessel. Like fine china. Fragile. And when husbands speak that way, they undermine love, security, trust from the wife. So children with wrong words undermine authority of their parents. Parents, when they speak the wrong way, undermine hope with their children. Wives, when they speak the wrong way, undermine respect of their husbands. And husbands, when they speak the wrong way, they undermine love, security, and trust in the marriage relationship. All with the misuse of our tongue. That's according to Scripture. So with the husband, I want to read this, because this has always fascinated me about, uh, in Colossians chapter 3 again, in the roles of husbands and wives. And the Spirit of God He says different things to each party. He says something different to the children, the parents, the husband, the wife. They all need to hear something different and very specific for a specific reason. It's because it has to do with their role and the expectations. And this one always kind of baffled me for years, but then kind of the light went on. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, about husbands. Okay, wives, be subject to your husbands. This is fitting in the Lord. Um, And then it says, as husbands, love your wives. And get this. So that's the positive part. What you should do, love. But what you should refrain from doing. Get this. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Isn't that strange? How come God doesn't say to wives, wives, don't be bitter towards your husband? I think He says it to the husbands because this is a, a... a susceptibility of husbands more so than it is for wives. And one of the evidences of it is a husband who isn't saying much. He's clamming up. He's isolating himself. You, he's not around. What in the world, Where is he? he? Well, he's hiding from your, the wife. He is avoiding the wife. Why? Because he is bitter. He has become bitter on the, for whatever reason. Whether over the course of years my authority has been undermined once, too many times. That is, I've had it. I've seen this in counseling uh, and interacting with Married couples, where the husband, he is angry, he is bitter, she doesn't appreciate my hard work, she doesn't appreciate the fact that I'm a provider, she doesn't appre- and just this bitterness that is pent up and finally whoosh, comes flooding out. And they need to confess it, they need to admit it and properly diagnose it. So, this is God giving fantastic insight of what really the problem is. Husbands don't become embittered because they can become embittered toward their wives. So what's the solution so that uh, husbands and wives can live together in humility? Well, the wives can speak with tender words showing respect to their husband and being submissive. And then uh, husbands can speak lovingly and kindly and graciously and in a non-bitter manner towards their wives. And when they do, there's perfect harmony. And the problem is, uh, say, the wife or the husband, you can start with the chicken or the egg. Say the husband isn't being loving and then the wife, her feelings are hurt and then She reacts in a sinful manner, and then that affects the husband, so he reacts in a sinful manner in reaction to her sinful manner, and then all of a sudden you've got this vicious spiral out of control. And it builds on itself. And that's why these commands from God are so simple. Let's just get back to the basics. Uh, Let's speak in proper ways that bless and enhance our relationships in the family. Going back to James chapter 2, we'll go on to point number three. The power of the tongue, the problem of our tongue, and then finally the purpose of our tongue. So James has been, you know, accentuating a lot of the negative regarding the use of our tongue. But here we get to the positive. All these negative things that it could be destructive, out of control, can create a fire, can do great damage. But God does want us to use the tongue for positive things nevertheless. And so that's verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> no one can tame the tongue without God's help. No one can tame the tongue, verse 8 without the Spirit of God. No one can tame the tongue without supernatural intervention. That's what that means. Left to its own resources, it is like deadly poison, like a snake. Verses 9-12. through But as Christians, with it we... And here's the contradiction of the paradox. And he's talking about Christians. With the tongue, we as Christians, bless our Lord and Father, don't we? We come and we sing to God and we praise His name and we're using our tongue to do it. And we pray to God and we thank You, God. And thank You, Jesus. This can be sincere as believers. So with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, creator of the universe. And at the same time, with the same tongue, we curse our fellow man. We go to church, praise God, thank you Jesus, we love you, and then you leave church, you go to the fellowship meal, you get in your car, you get on the freeway, some guy cuts you off and you curse him. With your tongue. In your car. He can't even hear you. You curse him anyway. That's what he's talking about. It's so easy to do, isn't it? And James is saying this is hypocritical. This is a double standard. Believers should not live this way. It doesn't matter who you're cursing, whether he's a believer or an unbeliever. If you've cursed a fellow man, if you said something that has undermined a fellow human being, you have undermined a human being that is precious to God, that God created. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Every single being. Every human. Whether a believer or an unbeliever is made in God's image. And that's why every human being is precious to God. Because they're made in His image. Don't do that. When we sin against a fellow human being by maligning them, cursing them, undermining them verbally, we are sinning against the Creator. Wow, that's convicting. Verse 10. From the same mouth as a Christian, both blessing and cursing. Double, it's like, it is like a forked tongue from a snake. And he says, My brethren, my fellow believers, Christians, that's what he means, These things ought not to be this way. So that is the main imperative or exhortation in this passage we need to take away from. We cannot be hypocritical and have a double standard with our mouth. Reign it in. Get it in control. Use it the right way to honor God and others and not undermine others. These things ought not to be this way. And then he concludes with these illustrations. Verse 11. Does the fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? That's hypocritical. There's a trend in evangelical Christianity today where it's hip and cool and relevant and the pastor is able to relate to sinners better if he says cuss words in the pulpit. Isn't that amazing? That is just an affront to God. It's disgusting. It's wicked. Out of the same mouth. The truth of the Word of God from Scripture and and the same mouth, gutter talk. Well, we're trying to be relevant. And James is saying, nope. It has no place in the Christian life. Uh, Verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? No. Or a vine produce figs. Nor can salt water produce fresh. So examine your life. Are you being inconsistent and hypocritical with your mouth? Uh, The truth still stands in verse 2 that we all stumble in many ways with our tongue. The truth still stands that as human beings... Uh, No one is able to tame the tongue perfectly at all times, but also scripture is clear that it is possible to control the tongue in obedience to God in a way that honors Him. That is possible, and that's what we need to strive for. So here's my question. You don't need to answer out loud, but I want to conclude with this question. Answer it in your own mind. What does a Christian need more than anything else to tame their tongue? Don't answer out loud in your own mind. What does a Christian need more than anything else to tame the tongue? Uh, and you know, there's possible several correct answers. Here's what I came up with. I think they need self-control. I don't know if any of you said that. That's what we need. Okay, so closing, we're just going look to at, look at Galatians 5. That's the fruits of the Spirit. Think about your own mouth uh, and how under what circumstances it's hardest for you to control your mouth. And now you know if you're a Christian what God expects. You need to control the tongue. And what you need to control your tongue the right way is self-control. And if you look at Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 22 and following, it says, the fruit of the Spirit. Here's what the Holy Spirit of God provides for the Christian. The Spirit, when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God begins to live inside of you. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. The same Spirit of God that created the universe. The same Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Supernatural, almighty, infinite, eternal, all-powerful, Holy Spirit of God lives in every Christian. Resident, dynamic, life-changing supernatural power. Isn't that amazing? The Spirit of God lives in you, Christian, so you have the resources at your disposal. And that's what he's talking about here. The fruit of the Spirit, the offspring, the, the offspring of the Spirit in your life produces the following. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a Christian and even does it through our words and our tongue and the use of our tongue. And if you think about it and analyze your own sin and misuse of your tongue and relationships with other people when you're speaking the wrong way, whether it's harshly, critically, impatiently, mainly, you are lacking love, you are lacking peace, you are lacking patience, you are lacking kindness, you are lacking Goodness, you are lacking gentleness, and you are lacking self-control. And the byproduct is the person you're talking to lacks a whole lot of joy. So that's all the fruits of the Spirit. And here, if you read Paul closely, he says it is possible. If we live life without the help of the Spirit, we will live in the flesh and produce the deeds of the flesh. But as a Christian, if we are in tune with the Spirit, walk daily with the Spirit, cry out to the Spirit, depend upon the Spirit, pray to the Spirit, confess our sins to the Spirit... We will walk in a manner manner consistent of producing the fruits of the Spirit, and it is a battle. But it is a reality, and it is possible with the help of God and the Holy Spirit inside of us. So that's a great challenge. So I'll leave you with that. We all stumble in many ways. None of us here can control our tongue, but God wants us to control our tongue. And if you lose sleep over that tonight, that's actually a natural thing. And I, I'm going to give you some uh, practical things to meditate on and, and help in your life and in my life to help manage our tongue. We all need help. So here they are: how we can have God's help. Principles to keep in mind. First thing is: how you talk matters to God. Every word you say, it does. Matthew 12:36 and 37. Every word matters to God. How you speak matters to God. Jesus said, Matthew 12:36, every word matters. Next one. Focus on yourself. In light of everything that I preached out of James, don't think about other people. Oh, he needs to do this. She needs to do that. Oh, my mother-in-law, wait till she hears. No. Maybe if you changed and reined it in, you'd get along better with your mother-in-law. Focus on yourself. Number three. One sin of the mouth is no worse or no better than the other sin of the mouth. Some people, well, I only struggle with complaining. He struggles with fill in the blank. Not just about every one of these sins has occurred in the Old Testament where God executed that person with capital punishment. Literally, they died. The wages of sin is death. All sin is unrighteousness, says John. Don't say, well, my sin of the mouth is respectable sin. Not. Number four, ask God daily to control your mouth. Prayer. Pray every day. God, help me uh, with my thoughts. Help me with my heart. Give me forgiveness. Help me to not be bitter. God, I need your strength. Holy Spirit, stir up your power inside of me. Ask God daily to control your your mouth. Uh, Number five, ask God daily for forgiveness of sin from those you've sinned against with your mouth. 1 John 1, 9, that's confessing to God, but also confess your sins to one another. Think about this week. Have you sinned against anybody with your mouth? Have you gone back and confessed your sin? If you didn't, you need to. Number six, ask others for Oh, I said that already. Ask God daily. Ask others for forgiveness. The next one, memorize Ephesians 4.29. Great challenge. Somebody challenged me with that when I became a believer. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Literally, let no rotten language comes out of your mouth. But only speak words that edify and build up those who hear you so that they might be blessed as a result. Let no unwholesome rotten word come out of your mouth. And while you're memorizing Ephesians 4.29, memorize Proverbs fifteen one a gentle answer turns away wrath. Well, you want to start a fight? Then just pick some harsh words. If you want to keep the calm, then a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15. And then finally, if you want to improve on your mouth and the control of your mouth, then read a chapter of Proverbs every single day. There's 31 chapters, 31 days in the month. Okay, today's the 12th, 11th. Okay, then I'm going to read Proverbs chapter 11 today. And more than any other topic in the book of Proverbs that you will find are exhortations or reminders about how the believer should control their mouth. More than anything else. Proverbs talks about everything. How to handle money, sexual purity, government, everything, but it talks about the mouth more than anything else. Isn't that instructive? So what I like to do sometimes, say today's the 11th, read Proverbs 11, and as I'm going through, try to find the most potent, penetrating proverb in that chapter directed towards my mouth. And then meditate on that one throughout the day. And then when you blow it, confess your sin to God and to your fellow man. And God who is faithful, He will forgive you of your sin if you know Jesus Christ personally. So with that, I know that's a lot of stuff to challenge us with. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help and thank Him for His precious Word. Father, we do thank You for the church and the family of brothers and sisters uh, all united because of our relationship personally with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word that reminds us that the wages of sin is death, that every sin warrants the death penalty because you're a holy God, which which sounds harsh in this world today, God. But thank you for the good news of your love and mercy that you've already given every sin the death blow with the death penalty. By having your son minds, Jesus Christ executed on the cross, so we might have success as he absorbs our sin. He absorbs your wrath on our behalf and and as our substitute. Thank you. That is such great that news. A great that is and liberating. And that is freeing. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. And tonight. thank you for saving sinners and adopting them into your family. God, now with the power of your Spirit, stir up your Spirit in our hearts and our minds that we might have success of living a life of self control and that it becomes manifest in how we use our tongue and give us grace when we fail we thank you we pray in jesus name amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about dr mcmanus other messages or resources please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009